Hi everyone, you're listening to Things of Interest. I'm Serena Chen. And I'm Sophia Ferenc. And today we're going to talk a little about free speech. Free speech has been quite a hot button topic lately. Recently we had two white nationalists from Canada, out of all places, um, come and visit New Zealand and then all their venues pulled out of hosting them to speak and there was this huge debate uh, in the public arena around whether deplatforming was an attack on their free speech, uh, whether it was censorship. And of course in previous years there's been heaps of debate around deplatforming and free speech and um, what free speech means around university campuses. Um, most, I can't pronounce his name so I won't even say it, but... <laughs> Don um, Brash? Don Brash? Oh yeah, Don Brash has also been... <laughs> it's not difficult to pronounce. Oh no, I was thinking of that Milo guy. Oh, Milo Yiannopoulos. Okay, yeah. So a couple of years ago, he was trying to speak on some university campuses and uh, and the university campuses as venues pulled out hosting and there was this huge debate around, you know, whether this was censorship. So, you know, those are the current events. Um, but mostly I wanted to do this episode because for my entire life, free speech has been something that I've taken for granted. Like, in my memory, it was always more good than it was bad. It was a way to allow divergent thinking and differences and opinion into your life and really work hard, um, work your like rational thinking centers to decide whether this new thought is worthy of being incorporated into your corpus of, you know, normal thoughts. So in my life so far, apart from the past few years, I've never seen the principle of free speech weaponized in such a way. It seems like now free speech, the principle of it, is a loophole for people to talk about things like literal genocide with a straight face. And free speech is being used as a tool for propaganda now, not a tool for real, in-depth, really hard discussion. And I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know how to deal. Uh, so what I hope to do in this episode is to really kind of stretch and poke and test the principle of free speech and its practicalities really thoroughly. And I thought, oh, who better to do this with than with one of the smartest people I know. Mm-hmm. So this will be fun. Um, but before we get into the discussion, I think it's probably a good idea to mention that Neither of us have prepared anything for this. Um, yeah, and I'm hungover, so yeah. it's gonna be great. <laughs> so it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun time. <laughs> yeah, like this this isn't some this isn't our treatise. This isn't our no. thesis of exactly what we think about free speech. This is no. you listening in on us figuring it out. Yeah, I want to give us that room to kind of like throw our ideas that are not totally thought out and not totally sure about because I think that's how we'll get the best discussion. I've certainly got a lot of, like, kind of half-formed sentence proto-ideas that are, like, swirling goop in my head, and hopefully maybe they'll come out to be clearer by the end of this episode. Or maybe not. Who knows? It's it's a big topic. So I thought we could start off by some something easy, something straightforward. Sophia, to you, what is free speech? God, that's, yeah, all right, easy question. Whatever. <laughs> straightforward yeah yeah um a big question so free speech is essentially the right to say whatever and it's important to recognize that even in your right to say whatever you're not protected from the impacts of that so like inciting violence is a crime right like Mm. if you were to tell people that they should go out and kill someone then that is technically a crime and one that is not often followed through thanks to justice systems but like it is a crime and so like you're allowed to say that but the implication of what you said and the effects of what you said are that you should get arrested similarly i don't think free speech entitles you to have a right to a platform and I think this is where social media becomes very interesting Mm -hmm. because like there's been a lot of big discussions on Twitter as to whether Twitter should be allowing massive racists a platform like whether they've in that instance broken the terms of service or xyz and Jack the guy that tweeted 
Twitter. See ya. Yeah, him. <laughs> the one that made it, you know. <laughs> uh, he's come under a lot of very politically fraught fire that I don't think is necessarily, like, helpful. That's a kind of a different discussion. Essentially, like, mm. there are people on Twitter who have definitely broken the terms of service that yep. aren't being banned. <coughs> and people... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people yeah. are going to jack to talk about it and it's like well he's a ceo <laughs> like he doesn't he's not the one sitting there with a big ban button being like mm, this one unacceptable <laughs> like there's there's a whole team behind twitter it's more than just him now and yeah that's essentially that difference between free speech and the right to a platform because on social media you can reach so many more people than you can even if you just like went down to the store and bought a megaphone and like yelled stuff at people on the street hmm. I want to go back to your comment about how, you know, inciting violence is a crime and therefore, like, you would get arrested and we have the law to kind of protect against the more harmful sides of free speech. So while you're free to say something um, like, hey, go kill X, you would get in trouble for it. And I think this is, like, where a lot of the tension comes from is that, like, who gets to decide who gets into trouble for what? So, like, in... Our country of New Zealand, um, we would, you know, we've got high trust in our legal system. And in Australia, too, question mark. Um, Relative high trust compared to somewhere like maybe Turkey. And maybe you're a journalist in Turkey and you want to say something that's critical of the government and that is illegal, apparently. Um, So the law in that case is not necessarily morally right um, as considered by a lot of people. So I guess that's where the tension comes from is like, yes, you are free to say whatever you want, but there will be consequences. But who gets to decide those consequences and what kind of consequences are acceptable and what kind of consequences are just perpetrating, uh, perpetuating the status quo and perpetuating those in ridiculous power? I think this is probably quite a frank discussion we can have about Australia and New Zealand as well as other countries that might have more tight-knit free speech laws Mm. i mean Mm -hmm. like turkey yes singapore also comes to mind Mm. i'm not sure if it's still the case but for a very long time it was illegal to swear in public i'm going there next week and that's going to be very Mm. difficult for me because i say fuck a lot what do they count as swearing i don't know do they have like a list i'm gonna wing it (laughs) good luck but yeah like even even talking about australia new zealand the sort of way that laws are enacted often inherently serve to support the status quo right like you can look at things like the fact that um and I've, I've talked about this a little bit before and like I don't want to go too into it because Yasmin is a friend and like I obviously can't speak for her but like mm. the fact that Yasmin Abdelmagid was like harassed mm. and like kind of like harassed by a major Australian newspaper right until she yeah. had to leave the country and I'm not sure if she considered or took any legal action but like that's also obviously a thing that like that's a platform issue right like Mm. you can think whatever the fuck you want to about her you don't have to like her you're allowed to be wrong she's incredible she's fantastic (laughs) but realistically like when you're using a platform of a major australian newspaper to tell people that like she should be australia like that she is australia's most hated muslim that she should die that she should like leave the country that she's ungrateful that like in that instance, like, that's that's a platform issue, right? Like, that's harassment. That's unnecessary mm. harassment of, like, an individual who, at her essence, like, is, at that time, was a 25-year-old woman. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's ridiculous. I'm laughing because I don't want to cry. And, like, we do sort of see that way that those laws are enacted in Australia and New Zealand quite a lot, I think. And it's also to Mm. do with, like, it's an education, it's an economic difference as well, right? Because if you Mm -hmm. consider the fact that if you don't know a law, you can't be protected by it. And I know we're having a lot of these conversations surrounding rental properties in New Zealand right now. And the Mm -hmm. tenants have heaps of rights, but landlords rely on them not knowing about it. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas um, the state I'm in in Australia, in Victoria, tenants don't have many rights, but they will soon. <laughs> um, right. The defamation case I was looking up. So there's, there's a columnist in Australia called Mark Latham, who's horrible. He's the worst. And there's a very cool left-wing writer called Osman Faruqi. Um, he 
was a Greens candidate, like he used to edit for um, Junkie Media, like he edits for the ABC now, he's a very cool dude, I yeah, follow him on Twitter where he no longer is thanks to racism, mm. but basically Mark Latham, who also like used to lead one of Australia's major co- political parties, accused Osman Faruqi of aiding and abetting Islamic terrorism and fostering anti-white racism in Australia. Anti-white racism. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Faruqi launched a libel action <laughs> because he was just like, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Mark Latham bought a defense, uh, and the reason it's in the paper right now is that um, it was a 76-page defense of why, like, it wasn't libel. Um, and the judge, like, just out of hand rejected it. And some of the comments were like, so the the judgment sort of says like Mr. Latham's defense is on just about any view an extraordinary document in order to address Mr. Faruqi's strikeout application it is necessary to attempt to come to grips with it this is no mean feat oh which is so good um there's a bit about like Labradors where the justice just like absolutely drags him but like this is one of the very few instances that I've seen where like a prominent non-white person is actually like starting to get it together like not like not like they're starting to get it together but like the australian law is starting to get it together with the surrounds of like prominent non-white people because like realistically like we haven't seen that in the history right like there's Mm. been this huge honored tradition right of people like mark latham people like andrew bolt who's another columnist in australia whose columns regularly could be inciting violence right like yeah, well, that's the other thing with this, um, with the application of laws or even rules in communities is that, you know, in theory, they're great and they should be applied to everyone. But in practice, people turn a willful blind eye to, you know, people like that who's, who are essentially inciting violence on a platform. I found the Labrador's comment. <laughs> so... This is part of the defense, so I'm just going to say it verbatim. Um, A number of other tweets posted by Mr. Faruqi concern the lack of cultural and gender diversity in positions of power or influence in Australian society, and the sense of entitlement among those who do occupy power, mainly white men. For example, on 20th of July 2016, Mr. Faruqi tweeted, Labradors are to dogs what straight white dudes are to politics. Boring, too common, entitled. Justice's um, comment then is, this tweet may well have been offensive to owners of Labradors or perhaps even Labradors <laughs> themselves. <laughs> Some readers may well have considered that it was a fairly crude and simplistic way for Mr. Faruqi to make his point. Others I love may Labradors. Have... I know, I know. <laughs> they're not entitled, they're lovely. They're so good. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's the kind of ruling that we're seeing in this case and potentially it's the fact that like it's a really high profile case that means that it's actually been done properly and it definitely relies on the fact that um osman faruqi has like that knowledge that he can raise that action that he can follow that through which other people in that kind of position wouldn't and i think that's the big thing that concerns me surrounding like free speech and consequences for free speech right like is if there are in the letter of the law consequences for your actions, but that is not never followed up either because of mm-hmm. like your quote unquote esteemed place in society or simply because the people that you choose to attack simply don't know that they have those protections. That really concerns me. Yeah. Well, the thing that I've been kind of mildly thinking about lately is, is the question of whether absolute free speech is even possible because if free speech, like as a concept in general is, impossible then where do we go from there right okay so how how do you can you clarify what you mean on absolute free speech well the idea of free speech is that um anyone with you know an opinion on something should be allowed to um voice that opinion you know not necessarily on a certain platform specifically but just in general people like they shouldn't be uh locked away or they shouldn't be um, censored or silenced by large government structures or uh, overly powerful structures or companies, and the, uh, the whole the whole concept of it, the whole like kind of well-meaning thought behind it, is that a marketplace of ideas is good for society, and that um, if we all just thought how we always thought, then we wouldn't progress that we wouldn't uh, improve and we wouldn't grow so if we you know this is the ideal world of thinking about it right like if we get to debate ideas then ideally 
the best ones kind of float to the top and um and we progress society and we progress human thinking that way obviously this isn't how it works in real life but in our world first of all we know that we don't live in an equal society there are inequalities everywhere on a number of different dimensions of the the human experience and and so we're we're not starting from an equal footing already so the whole idea of free speech is this kind of like idealistic theoretical thing where given the assumption that everyone has an equal platform that everyone has equal footing then you know ideally the best ideas go to the top but already we don't have that equal footing for everyone there's power indifferences there's socioeconomic indifferences so there's that um but also as audiences we have limited time we have limited attention we have limited focus um so in a world where we might we have unlimited time and attention and focus to consider everything coming towards us um then sure yeah maybe we get to really you know have the time and energy to discuss all of these different ideas and like throw out the ones that are shit and really let the best ones bubble to the top and grow as humanity that would be great but we don't we have you know <laughs> shit to do <laughs> we can't just be like debating every uh, every other person that hey now <laughs> Yeah. Hey now. <laughs> that was most of my undergraduate experience, okay? <laughs> yeah, I I mean same, but you know what I mean? Like yeah, the whole idea is that, you know, everyone has infinite time, everyone's on equal ground for free speech to work, but that that's just not practically true. And they're having equal access to ideas. Exactly. Yeah. So if that isn't true, then we don't we can't like physically can't have free speech and so if we can't have free speech and if if our time is limited if our like grounding is limited if if our platforms are limited then we we have to say okay admit the fact that we actually can't have real free speech and then we have to deal with the extremely difficult and uncomfortable idea of saying okay well what do we have because if we don't have free speech then we actually have to put some limits or some some boundaries around what we as you know the public deem acceptable and what we deem unacceptable and i guess this is the whole idea of the overton window which is something that's been talked about a lot in the media surrounding the 2016 election because that's basically what it is is this like kind of public feeling of what is acceptable to talk about what's on the fringe like what's kind of edgy but you know we'll still discuss it and what's completely unacceptable and the thing that really worries me right now is that white nationalists essentially nazis let's be real about it are using this free speech idea this you know beautiful grand gilded concept of free speech and using it as a weapon to basically assault the human senses um assault our news cycles and assault the the dialogue in the public zeitgeist to move our overton windows to somewhere that's ridiculous and hateful and horrific and i guess that's my worry is that because you know we as you know cosmopolitan left-leaning liberals we embrace the idea of free speech it's something that we don't even question it's something that you know we've taken for granted all of our lives and and i think that's doing the public a disservice and i think it's worthy and i get again this is like total unformed proto kind of thoughts but but would it be better i guess is my question for us to accept the fact that there is no such thing as absolute free speech for absolutely everybody and that we actually have to do the uncomfortable work and have the uncomfortable discussions around where we feel the Overton window should be, where we feel like what ideas are accepted what ideas are worthy of being discussed and what ideas are just unacceptable okay. like is that is that too scary is that yeah. slippery slope there's a lot there 
So I've got sort of three things. Is that firstly, like my sort of view of what absolute free speech entails is probably dramatically different to yours Mm. in that I very much come from a science fiction. If there's no thought police, you've got free speech. Mm -hmm. Essentially, like if you're alone in your apartment or even with your family, you can say whatever the fuck you want. That is free speech. You've got it. Well done. Mm -hmm. I think what you're talking about more is probably what I classify as like freedom of thought or freedom of ideas not necessarily free speech right because like Mm -hmm. we all have free speech what you're talking about is the implications of unequal access to people or platforms or information that -hmm. results in a warping of said free speech but like realistically like i get what you're saying so our specific language doesn't really matter here but like that's sort of for you to understand where i'm coming from yeah yeah for sure um the second thing is when i made that joke about debating everyone in undergrad i wasn't a terrible person i was actually part of the university's debate team i want to clarify that (laughs) (laughs) and like this this is a discussion we have in debating quite a bit because there are some topics we just don't set Mm. because like Either there's no point in having that discussion anymore. So, for example, abortion topics. I think um, there was one debate I was in in my very first year of debating where we discussed whether essentially, like, if you got given a bunch of money by a child's, like, other parent, whether that should, like, prevent you from having an abortion. The answer is no. Like, realistically, even at that time, it was probably quite a late time in sort of debating to set that topic. I think the last mm-hmm. time it was set at Worlds was, like, in a final in 2009. And that was kind of the point where it was like, actually, like, we're all on the side of a woman's right to choose. Like, there's no way to argue against this by. And generally, like, we had that sort of, like, very in-depth discussion about, like, I'm a couple of years ago, the New Zealand debating circuit was actually in the news because Mm -hmm. there was a debate topic that was like as a parent we would warn our female child about you know drinking and we would like tell her to be safe Mm -hmm. like sort of recognizing the existence of rape culture we would say look after yourself sort of putting the onus on her and like Mm. big furore about it like stuff had opinions new zealand herald had opinions it died out in like a flash because no one actually cares about university debaters as much as we like to think they really do. And I think, like, that's also a very interesting side to have on it, is, like, when those sort of more niche communities, and certainly not politically niche, um, a lot of the time, even within debating, we make jokes about us all being, like, left-leaning hippies. But, like, (laughs) the Otago University Debating Society had a president of ACT on campus, so a very libertarian party in it. Um, It had members of the Young Greens, like, people from sort of a very communist guy that one time people from all sort of like ends of the political spectrum because they come together Mm. because they want to discuss ideas in this sort of very safe format. And Mm. I've got a third point that I'm getting to, but (laughs) I feel like there is sort of, it's a very interesting community to be a part of. And then to take that lessons and those observations from that community and look at the wider world and Mm. sort of be like, well, does this help me at all? And the answer a lot of the time is no. I think the main thing that debating can do for you is make you understand why you hold your opinions. Mm -hmm. And like, certainly for me, like some of my opinions change being exposed to like that huge array of ideas and people who are very good at talking. And some of my opinions got firmed up. For example, there was a very good debater who um, got every so often in, in relevant debates would talk about how like he was into curvy women. So like society's messages didn't even matter and clearly hadn't affected him. And every time he said that, I just got like angrier and angrier about it. <laughs> um, so like, yeah, like definitely firmed up some of my opinions. And I mean, like we see this in the Australian debating circuit as well, where you get people who are like baby liberals but mm-hmm. who are also like, and maybe they don't necessarily agree with the fact that we shouldn't discuss some topics, but they also agree with the fact that they don't want their friends to be hurt. And I think like that's yeah. one of the big impacts of having a smaller community when you're discussing free speech in those very blunt terms and being like, mm. okay, like we can say whatever we want, but we have to recognize our words hurt people sometimes. And so maybe we should just make a rule where we don't talk about those things when we don't know who's going to be hurt and we don't know the impact that's going to have on them. And, like, that's much easier to do in a smaller community than in a country of four million people. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So the third point I was sort of going to get to is on, like, countries' perceptions of their own free speech. Particularly, like, now I've been in Australia for four years. Australia has this very high opinion of itself with regards to free speech. Like, it's kind of like, yeah, we say anything. We swear heaps. It's cool. (laughs) We'll drop C-bombs whenever. Yeah, like... It's free. 
Well, okay. So um, <laughs> I've been watching a sort of like Australia's John Oliver show. It's called Tonightly. It's been cancelled now. Great. Tragic. Uh, but they like, they dropped a C-bomb bomb, like mm-hmm. a couple of months ago. And we reported to the Australian media, whatever, whatever. And the Australian media council was just like, no, nah, that's fine. <laughs> and it's just like, I mean, I mean, they dropped a C-bomb between like 9.30 and 10 o'clock. Like, what? <laughs> and they're like, no, nah, it's fine. It's all good. Like, the, cool. pers- the person who said it, like, their character's been established as, like, an uncharacteristically angry man. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're good to go. Um, and I find it often very funny, particularly when looking at American proponents of free speech, where I'm just like, mate, you've got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> like, you'll get a bit weird about the word fanny. Like, come on. <laughs> Whereas New Zealand, I think, has never sort of – we've talked a little bit about this before, and I definitely need to um, – read a couple more books before we go really in depth into it and maybe even have a guest on. But like New Zealand was established as a welfare state. Like it was established Mm -hmm. as sort of like this kind community. Like the thing we love about ourselves is how nice we are. And that's not always true, right? Like Mm. we're dicks to a lot of people a lot of the time. Um, Often Maori people, often people with disabilities. Like that's the thing. Uh, Police shouldn't be in pride. Anyway, but, like, that's that's kind of what we value about ourselves as a community. It's, like, New Zealand likes the fact that it looks after the little guy, that it stands up for them. And part of that is the fact that, like, we want to protect people. Now we're entering this tension where right-wing neo-Nazis are saying that they are the little guy and their free speech needs to be stood up for. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, historically New Zealand has kind of stood in this place where we're like, you know, the little guys, like, people are discriminated against. People who are hurt by our language. And so we should protect them from that language. And so, like, it's it's a very sort of interesting tension to look at when, like, you know, Australia, like, invited Mayo Yiannopoulos um, <laughs> to Parliament House. And they tried to stop Chelsea Manning from entering the country. Mm. Like, and so you have that, that Overton window where... I feel like Australia and New Zealand have like very, very different Overton windows a lot of the time. Yeah. But you even see that difference between like regional and metropolitan areas, right? Like, and so. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's the added difficulty of like the fact that I'm going to try and step through this logically. (laughs) I'm Mm -hmm. sorry if it's not logical. (laughs) Um, No, no, no. So essentially social media has an inordinate amount of, amount of control over the news we read and the information that we have access to it's where a lot of young people get their news information and look guilty and that can be good and bad right like twitter gives power to individuals who are experiencing things at the time like people on manis and naru have twitter accounts like barunas bachani talks about the things that they are experiencing in real time on manis and naru that are not Mm. being reported in the main australian media that's really important like we get information about like the prison strikes in the u.s through places like facebook and twitter because the main newspaper news media media outlets aren't reporting on it but Mm. equally like advertising right like that's a thing like and we definitely see that in the run-up to elections is like you get targeted advertising to you specifically and that can be a problem and it can warp the kind of stories we see we see the stories that we agree with on facebook and twitter if you're signed into your google account and you google the same thing as someone else who's also signed into theirs you get different results because of the things that you googled previously the things that you've clicked on and essentially mm. like at that essence the things you believe in and so that's a problem right but i'm not convinced that it's worse than it used to be because if you think like Fair, diff- yeah. yeah like 50 years ago the sources of information we got were either controlled by the government or controlled by individual actors and sometimes that's fine like new zealand does kind of okay its government's pretty chill with the media the Australian government, the Australian people who own the media, super are not chill. They're really right wing. <laughs> it's really weird. I don't get it. Like, whenever I pick up a newspaper here, I'm like, oh, these people are really angry about, like, poor people. Why are they angry about this? And it's really, really off-putting, to be honest. Like, as someone who, like, wants to engage in news media and wants to, like, know yeah. what people are thinking, it's so far beyond even like the right-wing stuff that I will read online to kind of see where they are and see what they're thinking that it's just like it's very weird (laughs) um so like while we are sort of seeing like this more insidious way of targeting particular ideas towards particular groups of people 
I'm not convinced that it's like it's any worse than it was 50 years ago when everything like was much more state controlled, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess um the difference because you kind of see this with every kind of new iteration of new media is that you'll see the the new media come into the mainstream, everyone starts consuming it, whether it be uh, newspapers, whether it be television, whether it be whatever. And inevitably you'll have um, people who take advantage of it in some way. Like I think about it um, like the banner ads in the 90s. Everyone clicked on the first banner ad, right? The first few banner ads, you clicked on them because people didn't quite understand what they were. Like, they didn't understand the internet completely. Yes. But they made such good memes. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen the one that's like centipedes in my vagina? Yeah, yeah, I have. Classic. But yeah, like, it's, it's like when this new kind of form of communication is first descends upon the mainstream public people don't fully understand the ins and outs and how it can be gamed so people tend to you know other actors may tend to game it for their own gain and then uh, eventually the public um the majority of people will develop a kind of um banner blindness like we did in the 90s the kind of defense against the bad actors in this new media so that's cool and that's been a problem you know forever people trying to game new media trying to to trick people trying to get them to think um how they want them to think so this is essentially what we're seeing with um with social media and with the internet now is that oh you know you've got a group of people saying hey if i say really extreme things youtube will show my video on autoplay because that's how youtube works they want to keep you engaged they want to you know bring you down into this rabbit hole of whatever topic you're looking at. So the more extreme I go, the more views I get. So what we're seeing is just people trying to game the system, right? But I guess my my worry and my... Uh, yeah, my worry is that as we move on in time, these new media, uh, these new ways of communication... They happen more frequently, they change more frequently, there's new ones popping up all the time, and we don't have as much time as, you know, the majority of people, as the public, to develop defences against these ways of gaming it, because by the time we are defended against one, a new way of uh, hijacking our brain comes up, (laughs) and it's just a... Well... It seems like it seems like a very young person thing to be mm-hmm. concerned about gaming, like being defended about gaming those systems, right? Mm. Like that that genuinely seems to me like a very millennial attitude to have. Whereas, like not necessarily uncritically, I think like even our parents would just kind of mm. be like, okay, like so, like I know what I believe, right? <laughs> and I mean, like some of that, some of that is a problem in that, like you can be less aware of when your beliefs, your access to information is being changed. Mm. And the access to information thing is the one that does really concern me because like, I do want to be conscious of the fact that like historically we haven't had access to information and now there is this deluge of information thanks to the internet. Too much. Yeah. And like, Mm. not all of it is reliable or yeah, stuff we should really be putting into our eyes, but equally like, it's not necessarily like being aware of people trying to game it because like even if you think about like how where we live affects our beliefs right mm, like mm-hmm. i live in a very immigrant suburb of melbourne and like part of the reason i chose to live here is like i'm an immigrant <laughs> like i grew up for a few years in the middle east so the fact that there were a lot of middle eastern bakeries nearby was a draw card for me like mm. i want to live here and be engaged in that culture whereas if you live in a very blue collar suburb full of white people like you'll constantly be exposed to like even just overhearing conversations people in your neighborhood with different beliefs like those are things like there are jokes in melbourne about like how all the lesbians move to northcote and get a dog together right like (laughs) so that means that there are these sort of like very concentrated places of political belief and you i mean we can see that when we look after elections as to like what mp has got in what areas Mm -hmm. and some of it's to do with like 
social class and it's to do with like economic security like the immigrant makeup of areas but like realistically even if you're in a minority in one of those suburbs like you will be impacted by the views that exist around you and to me that's one of the most insidious ways of like impacting your beliefs because either like Mm. if you like hold very different beliefs so like if you're very anti-immigration and you live in an immigrant suburb either you will start to see those other people as more human and like valid in their place in society and like believe that they belong there or your beliefs will become very strongly entrenched and you'll go oh, I live around all these people that I hate um, but both of those are ways that like your living situation is impacting like your personal beliefs right and I think like that's by far the most insidious way that our beliefs are impacted and that's something that has always existed really like that's not something yeah. that's impacted by social media because like you know I can look at as many memes as I want on Facebook but the thing that's going to impact me the most is where I live in my day to day, like who I see when I put my garbage out, like the interactions I have at the Bunnings across the road. Yeah. 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 Yes. It's like, um, yeah, I'm just thinking now of um, a recent podcast that I listened to where um, they were talking about studies done on people's political attitudes when they found out that their racial group was shrinking. Ooh, that sounds like a terrible study to read. <laughs> it was quite fascinating um, because it has quite a human element behind it. Like, yeah. it, it's quite a visceral feeling that if you know that um, that your own group, whatever group that is that you identify with, that you kind of hold close to you, um, is shrinking, then people's political uh, views tend to move to the right to more conservative and that's true of all groups you don't have to answer this if it's like a super weird personal question but like how <laughs> how attached do you feel to your racial identity like is it something that's like being part mm. of your racial group mm-hmm. is very important to you or like is it more your culture that's important to you uh oof. that that's a really interesting question because I'm definitely at like a crossroads in my life where for the majority of my life, especially growing up in New Zealand, I felt zero or even negative attachment to to Chinese people, to Asian people, because I, I didn't want to be Chinese. Um, because, woo, yeah. Racism. <laughs> Racism, it fucks you up. Um, yeah. So, yeah, like I had, I had zero attachment to it for most of my life. And it's only been recently that that I've realized that that's kind of mean to myself. <laughs> and it's kind of, it's especially mean to my parents, like to have your child reject your own culture in such a way. So like I've been trying to, uh, to learn more about my own culture and to be more okay with being Chinese. But even so, there's not a huge visceral attachment it's I feel it more in unfortunately because of my living situation I I am an immigrant in a like majority white country I feel that attachment more when other people attach me to the group so when I am discriminated against and and when people yell go back to China on the street like that's when I feel that attachment the most yeah so I guess like the follow-up question would then be like if you found out that Chinese people in New Zealand as a population were shrinking. Like, how would that make mm. you feel? I don't know. But I can tell you that they did, um, the study that they did, they did with Chinese Americans and Hispanic Americans um, and Black Americans as well as White Americans. And it was the situation was the same. All of them would support the Republican Party more when they found out, when they were being primed with the idea that their own group was shrinking or another group was growing, which was interesting I sort of come from the position that, like, and I mean, this is the luxury of being, like, the majority group, right? Like, I don't really mm. give a shit about white people. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> it's, probably, it's probably a good thing if there are fewer of us. Like, just statistically, particularly Australia and New Zealand, we all get skin cancer. Like, what are yeah. we doing here? But I do have a very strong connection to my family's history, So, like, I care very deeply about, like, sort of my family's past and, like, where we've come from. And, like, I know a lot of our oral history, but, like, I don't have, like, an inbuilt affinity. Like, mm. Mm. I don't have a conscious inbuilt affinity to other white people. I think everyone probably has a little bit of a subconscious affinity to people Mm. who look like them because you're like, oh, same, same. Yeah. Same dress, same dress. Uh, (laughs) But, like, 
I feel like if I found out that white people as a population were sh- shrinking in New Zealand, I'd be like, yeah, good. Whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. immigration is what makes this country strong. Let's go. <laughs> like, Yeah, I guess it's a less of a rational thing and more of a, like a subconscious. Yeah. Thing. I definitely know. Um, so when I went back to Tauranga, so the town I grew up in after being away for a few years, um, there were a lot more uh, Arab and Indian immigrants. Mm-hmm. And definitely the first time I saw that, I was just kind of like, you do a double take. Yeah, I was surprised because yeah, yeah. the Tauranga I grew up in was super white. And I mean, like, <laughs> again, like, I definitely come from the place where, like, I grew up in the Middle East for a few years. So, like, I spent time being the minority, right? Like, mm. and admittedly, that's when I was, like, a little kid. But, like, yeah, like, there were situations where, like, my family was the only family who looked like us. And often when we were the only family who only spoke English, right? Like, mm. <laughs> um, did you learn some of the language when you were there? Yeah, so Lebanon has That's the two awesome. um, languages of French and Arabic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my mom spoke a bit of French. Um, I learned French growing up and continued to learn it when I came back. And I learned Arabic growing up and for a while continued to learn it when I came back. But it got really difficult to um, yeah get, get an Arabic teacher after yeah. you know, <laughs> September 2001. Like, oh, oh yeah. which I absolutely understand and sympathize with. But yeah, so I at the column shoisho Arabia is generally what I say, which means I don't speak a lot of Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I do sort of keep up with French. That's so cool. Um, but it, I I guess like that. Yeah, I don't want to downplay the fact that like that has definitely had an impact on like how I view my relationship to my mm. race, if that makes sense. Yeah, because like definitely traveling. Like if we met other people from New Zealand who were traveling. It would just be like, oh, cool, we're both New Zealanders. And that would be the more important thing, yes. like, regardless of what race those people were. And, I mean, even now, like, the more important thing to me is, like, my queer community. If I found out that the LGBT community was shrinking, I mean, I probably wouldn't be more conservative <laughs> because they want us to shrink. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I would definitely, like, be a little bit more extreme in my views because I would be worried about my community. I want to protect them. Yeah, well, this is the thing that surprised me about that survey was that, um, like, if for white Americans, if they found out that, you know, their um, their group was shrinking, for them to move conservative makes sense, right? Mm. But for for African Americans, for Asian Americans, for Hispanics, they, it kind of doesn't make sense to move Republican, but they do. And that that was the kind of, like eyebrow raise moment and yeah um, it could be um the association with protection of the status quo Mm, mm -hmm. yeah that could be and i think like again it's like a major difference between sort of even australia and new zealand and that the right-wing party here who are very confusingly called the liberals emphasize the protection of the status quo whereas Mm. even in like in new zealand like even national is just like no obviously we need to change things (laughs) like come on guys let's get it together (laughs) Yeah, different scales happening. Yeah, and, and I mean, that could be, like, to a large extent, why New Zealand's response to, like, the, you know, worldwide increase in xenophobia that's happening right now was to elect a female unmarried young prime minister. Like, that could be just a reflection of the fact that, like, literally all of our political parties want to keep moving forward into the future, want to, like, recognize the need for change. Whereas in a lot of other countries, the more conservative political party wants things to stay the same. That's always that's always the tension, isn't it? Um, we should talk about free speech again. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> what what what's on your mind? I mean, I was just I was just thinking about debating again. Like, yeah, it's it's very weird coming out of university debating to realize that not everyone else has spent that long discussing things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. But also, like, that point in debating when you realise that eight people yelling at each other in a room for an hour <laughs> is not the basis of any well-adjusted friendship. <laughs> I've always found it interesting as a micro-community. I think more so than any of the other, like, sort of micro-communities I've been a part of. Essentially because, like, we are very willing to have these quite blunt discussions. Because, like, that's literally what our sport is. <laughs> mm-hmm. But our follow-through is also very, very bad. So the big thing for me is that, like, debating has these very big discussions about equity, which is essentially, like, don't be a fucking racist. Also, don't sexually harass or assault people, please. And because we've been having these discussions for upwards of 10 years, right, like, we have sort of very well-adjusted equity things where we let, like, the victim take charge of things, like, um, 
whoever's been hurt has the ability to kind of dictate what happens and figure out how to move forward. Like we have these sort of quite structured rules and they're constantly evolving. And sometimes there'll be a tournament where everyone's like, Oh, there was too much equity. It was boring. It was terrible. I hated it. (laughs) And it wasn't like well thought out. Often those are the tournaments where equity also like doesn't have any power. So that's a really interesting tension and that when people feel like there are too many rules, it's often also a situation where those rules can't actually be enforced, (laughs) which, okay, debating weirdos. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But also like to then turn around and look at somewhere like, even like science, right? Mm -hmm. Very few conferences have even codes of conduct. Yeah. Simply because like that's, I, I don't know, like maybe that's not seen as a valuable thing, right? Like, Maybe it's seen as too much overhead, too much risk for the conferences, too much risk for the people organizing it. But it means I came out of kind of a community. And, like, to an extent during my PhD, we're still in that community a little bit. Because, like, you know, when you go to a new place, you do the things you know. Where we had these very rigid rules that, like, sometimes couldn't be enforced, sometimes couldn't be followed through. But, like, the rules were there. We were figuring out how to enact them in a way that protected people. Hmm. And, you know, like, in some situations, this meant that, like, we found out that we couldn't ban someone who is known to have sexually assaulted people from a tournament and so we figured out how to do that for the next tournament we were like "Mm, okay we can't do that this time we're gonna make damn sure we can do it next time (laughs) Mm. and to attend scientific conferences and have like none of those protections i found very bizarre because again like universities academia ostensibly should be like left-leaning progressive and again protectors of free speech which is why there's been this big discussion about like Miley Yiannopoulos, Don Brash even not speaking at universities because yeah that's where the thoughts go to like fight it out right like that's where we get the best ideas from is universities and occasionally think tanks but generally universities to be so unprotected in universities in things associated with academia kind of made me realize that like, despite all of the like posturing surrounding ideas, surrounding science, surrounding the scientific method. And like, you know, I'm sure political conferences also pan out like this, right? Like I'm speaking specifically about science because those are the conferences I attended, but like those places where like ideas were meant to be presented and discussed and improved or like knocked down if they seemed like inaccurate were necessarily like excluding people who would be at risk in those conferences, right? Like because there weren't protections from sexual harassment or sexual assault because there weren't protections from like, I was attending a conference where like a guy who had sexually assaulted me might also be attending. I had no way to figure out if he'd be there before I actually turned up. Right. Like (laughs) to not have that protection necessarily excludes people like that. And I'm sure there are a lot of them because like the rate of sexual assault in academia is wildly high. And yeah, that, that kind of bothers me, right? Because like that's, I've been talking about like insidious ways that our free speech is impacted, insidious ways that like that marketplace of ideas is stopped from being complete. And I think that's one of the biggest ones, right? Is like when we don't protect like maybe at risk portions of our population or at the very least, like if we don't protect like at its essence, the importance of people's voices, then we're just going to get, like, shitty ideas from white people and generally white men. Like, so. I guess this is kind of like a, an affirm- like an affirmative action approach to free speech to recognize that the status quo is not equitable. It's, it's not equal in any way, shape, or form. And to try and perhaps instead of um, giving a platform to everyone, boosting everyone's voices, boosting the ones that um, we might need the most. Well, um, there's a sort of um, catchphrase in disability activism that we use a bit, which is nothing about us without us. Mm-hmm. That's a good catchphrase. Yeah, no, it, it is very, very good. And it's it's one of my like core frustrations with scientific research, right? Like I've never met someone who worked on genetics or biology of deafness or um, hearing loss mm. who could sign. Right, mm-hmm. Like, I still haven't met someone who worked in, you know, immunization or health or whatever in the Pacific who spoke any Pacific language. And it's like, even I know, mm. like, Bulla and Talofa Lava, and, like, I can kind of, like, jam with some Samoan because it's, like, it's similar to Māori, right? Like, I yeah. know some words. Some of them are very rude words. Like, <laughs> you know, like, I know a bit. I can say, hi, how are you? 
mm. and do like a polite introduction. But people who are doing scientific research who are trying to improve the lives of those communities. And I want to emphasize that, right? Like when you do research that engages a community, you're trying to make that community's life better mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Historically, no. But now I genuinely believe that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Johns Hopkins used to like purposefully infect black men with syphilis yeah. and not tell them they had it. Yeah. They seem to not be doing that anymore. So that's a good start. Um, yep. <laughs> but like to be baby steps, to not think about the need to communicate with that group. And like, this is, this is again, this is free speech, right? Like free speech prioritizes English a lot of the mm. time in our countries. And okay, whatever. Like, <laughs> in New Zealand, like, our um, official languages are English, Māori, and New Zealand Sign Language. So we mm-hmm. should prioritise free speech in one of those three languages. I will accept that. Mm-hmm. But to do research with communities, to travel to other places and try and ingrain yourself in that space, when you're doing it over a period of years, because I understand it if you're going to, like, Honduras for six weeks to do an intensive study and you just get a translator instead of learning Spanish. Okay, Mm. that's fine. I understand that. If you're doing like five years of work in the Pacific, learn a Pacific language. My God. (laughs) Like if you spent your life doing um, deafness and hearing loss research, like learn sign, like learn how to sign. I'm sorry, I'm bad at sign, right? Like (laughs) that's it. Because if you don't have that basic way of engaging with the community, like it's not like you're limiting their free speech, but like from a scientific perspective, you are limiting the utility of your research. Mm. Sorry, I got really on my soapbox. No, that's good. That's really good. I hope I hope scientists are listening. I'm really mad about the hearing loss stuff. <laughs> well, it, I think you're right to be mad about it because it's, I mean, my analog for this would be like designing something for a, for a specific community while not engaging with them at all, not listening to their problems not bringing them on in in your decision making process it's bad design it's it's you're doing your own job a disservice and if you're it's the same thing with research it's like if you want to understand more about what goes on you're doing yourself a disservice by not involving um the communities that you are looking at that you're researching by not getting them involved yeah limiting the quality of information you get absolutely and like i mean i think it's particularly clear with sign language because like it's such it's a i don't know if you've done any sign language courses Mm, uh one (laughs) yeah well then you'd know as well right like it's a fundamentally different language to english yeah it is a different way of talking it's a different way of communicating information and that will like impact how you think right yeah it's got a different grammar different syntax um people think that sign language is just like one-to-one english to gesture translation and it really yeah. isn't no um whenever i sign with like deaf people they give me shit about signing english rather <laughs> than signing in auslan and i'm just like okay yeah. okay please <laughs> i'm doing my best <laughs> but yeah to like not be able to engage with a community in their first language kind of means like you're limiting you're limiting that information if you um and i think some of it is like so I sort of found out about this disconnect when I did my first sign language course and I'm like, oh, like the hearing loss research group will like speak Mm. sign language. And I chatted to some people in it and they were like, no, absolutely we don't. I'm like, but you work with deaf kids. But why? Like if their first language is sign, Mm. like why are you making like a five-year-old talk in their second language? (laughs) Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's frustrating. You'd get a lot of uh, signal loss, right? Yeah. By trying to communicate through trans and translation is hard. Like there, you, you guarantee signal loss when you communicate through a translator because it's hard. You you can't trans translators often very very good. Oh but yeah, I think fantastic. even having like a basic understanding of like where the differences between languages exist. It's like it's like how everyone knows those untranslatable German words and like how we use mm. words like Schadenfreude in day to day life because like it's just it's untranslatable. <laughs> there are elements of that with like any language in the world, like between mm. any two languages. Um and to not understand that gap means even the utility of a translator is lacking. Mm. I've just realized that we've gotten off of free speech again. <laughs> Um, like, yeah, like, languages are still fundamentally about free speech. 
So I guess there would be like a free speech kind of issue around what languages you make a country's official languages. Oh, there absolutely are. Thank you. Yeah. I'm so glad you Let's brought get this into up. That. Quite recently, the Australian senator. So Australian politics right now is wild. Recently, they like changed the prime minister. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't know, he cared about renewables too much. I think they were like, "Oh, we're really angry. You care about renewables. We're just gonna kick you out." Australia has not had a prime minister for a full term since Twitter started. One of the best, one of the best like timeline things I've seen is like the Large Hadron Collider was turned on, and then Australia hasn't had a prime minister for a full term. <laughs> so. <laughs> probably an impact like coincidence we thought like there was going to be like minuscule black holes actually it's just resulted in very high turnover in australian politics um anyway we like we're going to replace the prime minister malcolm turnbull with a guy called peter dutton who like actively locks people up on the tropical gulags of manis and nauru and like prevents children from getting effective medical care okay he's actually been replaced by a guy called scott morrison who is also very bad at the, like, supporting people being locked up at Manus and Nauru and child torture. Like, Mm. so the same week that this prime ministership spill happened, like, a 12-year-old girl set herself on fire, right? Like, very bad. Um, And apparently, according to all Australian politicians, fine, despite the fact that it was very bad. I saw a very apt tweet to summarise the whole situation in Australia, and it was basically that um, the Peter guy is, like, actively um locking up children is great and we should all do it and the the scott guy is like it is a shame that we have to lock up these children but we must do it yes and that's basically the difference and he says like some shitty things about poor people and apparently was like very mediocre as health minister so yay he's the prime minister now this means nothing the other big thing that happened in australian politics is there was a senator called fraser anning who's part of one of the very right-wing xenophobic parties, who gave a speech where he referred to Manus and Nauru as the final solution. That is a set of words that has um implications. And in case you went to Fuck, an Australian school and might not know what this means, because, my God, is your education system terrible, those were the words used about the Holocaust. They are bad words to use. And so he he said this in his initial speech and then was like, oh, I didn't realize that they were like a Nazi thing, which, okay, you're clearly not cut out to be a senator then. Um, he then put forward a bill trying to make English the official language of Australia. So Australia currently has no official language, which is good and bad. Mm-hmm. It's good in the sense that it doesn't like structurally prioritize English over all of the indigenous languages. Um, mm. It's bad in the sense that, like, you cannot request um, government forms to be in a particular language. So you can't force that to happen. Whereas in New Zealand, for any government interaction, you can require forms in any of our three, like, main languages. So you probably can't get a form with, like, New Zealand Sign Language printed out on it. Um, but if you're in court, for example, you can request a translator and that would have to be re- um, provided by the government for mm. um, New Zealand Sign Language. So that's, that's, yeah, good and bad. Fraser Anning, massive secretly Nazi, or maybe not so secretly, he literally said the final solution, racist. I just can't believe this shit is still happening. I mean, I can believe it. I can absolutely believe it. But it... Hold on. Fuck. I just need to check, like, one thing. Anyway, he put forward um, mm-hmm. English as being Australia's uh, national language, and everyone was like, we see what you're doing. <laughs> no. Mm. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like, Australia's just like this, right? Like, the one of the other major senators we have is Penny Wong, who is a, uh, I believe she, her family's from China, but she's also, like, very gay and very left-wing. Mm-hmm. And then we have, like, Janet Rice, who's a senator whose background is in, like, um, meteorology and being a climate change activist and is in, um, she's married to a woman. It's kind of like, okay. I don't know what the Australian Senate does, but it seems to just be such a mixed bag. But yeah, like, and and that's sort of what you're talking about when you talk about, like, official languages and, like, the values that they have. Like, to make English the official language of Australia, like, maybe wouldn't be a bad thing, but when it's been put forward and suggested by someone with the kind of beliefs that Fraser Anning has, like, you're like, oh, I see what you're doing, and no. (laughs) Like, I don't want that to happen. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing how much of a difference context makes. Yeah. Whereas, like, if I saw um, 
someone from the left wing doing it, I'd be like, okay, you're probably just like a bit misguided as to like the potential value of this. Like having only English as Australia's national language, I can only see as a bad thing. While there are a huge amount of indigenous languages, um, which will maybe make it impractical to have them all listed as Australia's national languages, I think probably a fairly good middle ground for someone who's very invested in having national languages of Australia would be to have Auslan as being one of them. Just simply because of the fact, like, we get a lot of exposure to New Zealand sign language, even if you just do something like learn the alphabet and how to like introduce yourself in primary school, you do learn that. There are a number of deaf children in Australia who just never like don't have access to Auslan. And I mean like a number of hearing children who also don't have access to it, but like deaf children are really like this this is a population that should absolutely have access to it. So like um Trisana Levitsky Gray, who was a young Australian of the year one year, is a huge activist for this. And I didn't even realize it was a problem until I met her and I was just like, wait, like do you not have access to Auslan? And she was like, no, literally there are children who are like completely like 100% deaf, do not have access to Auslan, are punished when like are basically forced to speak English or grow, grow up without language simply because like they can't hear English. And that like slows down their development, like prevents them from yeah, yeah, engaging in their community at all. Um, and so like, that's, that's kind of a big thing. I, I really enjoy signing languages. Like, um, they're often very useful for deaf people, obviously, um, but also autistic people. Um, mm-hmm. Because, like, so I'm autistic and Auslan just makes, like, so much sense to my brain. Like, New Zealand Sign Language just makes so much sense to my brain. I'm just like, oh, yeah, okay, no, this is a good language. Like, this is good. Um, mm-hmm. And if I'm, like, nonverbal, which thankfully doesn't happen very often, like, I can always still sign. It's just, like, it's different pathways. It's like, oh, okay, no, I can, I can't, like, talk. Like, I can't make the words come out of my mouth, but I can make them come out of my hands. Must be good for um, the need to yell across rooms yeah, at a party. Yeah, I used to um <laughs> sign with my housemate at parties when we wanted to leave. So like, yeah. I don't, I can't sign a lot of New Zealand Sign Language, and I'm pathetically bad at Auslan and need to take more courses. But one of the like sets that I learned um was I learned how to like talk to my housemate across the room and say like, oh, do you want to go? And he'll be like, oh no, I'm getting another drink. I'm signing. You can't see mm-hmm. it. A podcast is an audio medium. Um, <laughs> but like that's, that was kind of like what I use it for. Like during uni, it was like talking to people across rooms at parties or yeah. And then I took um, some Auslan courses when I came here and there are some, there are some, some notable differences in what particular signs mean. Um, uh, and even like across Australia, like there's one sign that means like hungry in Victoria, but means horny in New South Wales. And it's like, oh, well, no. hungry for something else. <laughs> I, I strongly recommend everyone who is listening to like go out and take a sign language class. If you have the, like, if you have the time, if you have yeah. the money, like, because they're just, they make you think in a different way. They're really good. And, they're useful. A lot of divers learn some basic sign language so they can talk underwater. Yeah. Nice. Try and get um, your work to sponsor it because that's what we did and it was good. And then you don't have to pay for it. Yeah. Go out and learn some sign language, everyone. Oh, and of course, like, um, the differences in how languages make you think uh, has been studied to, like, a large extent. Um, mm. I think I read something about, like, people who grow up speaking Mandarin or like a Chinese language as their first language often have a much clearer conceptualization of their family tree. Yes, because we have um, very specific names of, like in English you'll have brother and sister and we'll have older brother, older sister, younger brother, younger sister. And then in English you'll have, you know, grandma, grandpa, and we'll have grandma from my mother's side, grandma from my father's side. Like everything what has its own specific name but the problem with that is that like I, it's hard to remember <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i um my um my classes taught mandarin in year seven and eight because we, we were the amazing. extension class that's so cool um i can now just say like nihao was it sophia um yeah. but i remember the name for i think younger brother is Gigi. uh Gurga is older brother yeah and didi is younger brother oh uh, there we go mm. <laughs> Yeah. Adorable. You're right, it was a while ago. <laughs> but yeah, no, I remember having like massive difficulty with that just because like we have never had to think about it in English. Yeah, and this been like I really enjoyed the studies of around um how quickly you can do mental arithmetic in Mandarin <laughs> versus French. Yeah, yeah. Mm. French is fucking terrible. <laughs> 
as you oh, could probably guess. 480s. 480s, 4819. Yeah, 480s. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I say that as someone who speaks quite a bit of French. It's a terrible language for counting. <laughs> but it sounds so nice. Uh, croissant. Everyone embark on a new language. Yeah. This, this is the outcome of like our episode <laughs> about free speech. It's just go learn a language, then your free speech will be better. You've been listening to Things of Interest. This episode we've been talking about free speech, whether true free speech can exist. Serena thinks no. I think it does already. We might come back different to Different definitions. Yeah, yeah, we could have like a whole debate episode about it. Um, <gasps> no. <laughs> <laughs> I would lose. <laughs> <laughs> Talked about languages, about sort of like a lot of political differences between um, Australia and New Zealand and to an extent like the US and worldwide as well, because like those are things that play into how we perceive free speech, whether we believe we have it and how we sort of move forward with that as well. Um, it's been a fascinating episode, so thank you for picking this topic, Serena. Thank you for joining me. As usual, you can find us online at thingsofinterest.co. We're on Twitter at Casting Interest, and you can email us, castinginterest at gmail.com. We're on Facebook too, or just Things of Interest there. If you liked this episode, if you've liked other episodes, if you just like us, uh, please leave us a review. They really, really help. Um, you can do that on Apple Podcasts. You can do that on your favorite podcast app, or you can just like email us and be like, hey, you guys are really cool. Yeah. We'd like that too. Oh, that would be so lovely. Is there anything I've missed? Oh, share it with a friend if you liked it as well. Yeah. Word of mouth is how we get around. Yeah. So let, let your friends know. Yep. And I've been Sophia France. And I'm Serena Chen. And as always, stay interesting.